This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, Deadheads. Welcome to the season two finale of So Dead. For this episode, I picked a story that combines two of my favorite things, true crime and the paranormal. So sit back, relax, and enjoy another dead time story. On the heels of the 137th anniversary of one of Michigan's most twisted massacres, it's time to talk about the Crouch murders. Jacob Crouch was born to Captain Henry Crouch and his wife Susan in Orange County, New York in 1809, the third of four children. When he was just three years old, Jacob's father left home to fight in the War of 1812. As is often the case, things did not go so well for Captain Crouch. He was captured by the British at Fort Erie and was held in Halifax, Nova Scotia as a prisoner of war. He was released in 1815 when the war ended, and he began his long journey back home to his wife and their four young children. He made it all the way back to New York, but then in the town of Marcellus, he contracted smallpox and died on the road. The residents of Marcellus decided to bury Captain Crouch with one of his comrades who died the previous fall, also of an illness, Captain Benjamin Branch. The two men were buried alongside the Seneca Turnpike. Their headstones are still there to this day, along with like a little raw iron fence and a historical marker. It's a nice little two-person graveyard. So Captain Crouch survived the War of 1812, but died before making it back to his family. And at the age of 31, Susan Crouch was a widow and a single mother to four children, ages 11, 8, 6, and 3. The youngest of the Crouch children, Pamela was born in July 1812, just weeks after the war started. So it's pretty unclear if she ever even met her father. If she did meet him, she certainly didn't remember him. So just really sad all the way around. Despite his tragic early life, Jacob Crouch did all right for himself. He was a successful farmer in New York, and at the age of 21, with $400 in his pocket, he relocated to Michigan to start anew. $400 doesn't sound like a lot, but in 1830, that was quite a chunk of change. That would be like over $10,000 today. So he, he was doing all right. He bought a plot of land on Horton Road in Jackson County's Spring Arbor Township and started what we... Sorry, I am already I'm already tongue-tied. This is not going to go well because this is a long one. Um, so again... He bought a plot of land on Horton Road in Jackson's Spring Arbor Township and started what would become one of the area's largest and most successful farms. On March 25, 1838, when he was 29, Jacob married 25-year-old Anne Bush, and together they set about raising a big old family. Their first child, a daughter named Susan, was born the following year in 1839. The next year brought another daughter, Ethel, who died at the age of four, and then a son, Byron, in 1842, and another son, Dayton, in 1846. Daughter Eunice was born in 1850, and the baby of the family, Judson, was born on December 5th, 
1859. That is quite a span between the kids. There's 20 years between the youngest and the oldest. By the time Anne had her last child, she was 45, which, I mean, that's nothing today. 45-year-old women have children all the time. But 45 was pretty old to be having babies back in the 1800s. If $400 in the 1800s equals $10,000 today, then being 45 back in the 1800s is like, what, being 75 now? Is <laughs> That math is not correct at all. I just totally made that up in my head. The point being, lifespans were way shorter back then, and 45 was pretty old to be having babies. As such, there were complications. Baby Judd was born with a curved spine and a deformed foot, and his mother died six days after his birth, leaving Jacob Crouch a widower with a house full of kids to raise, including a newborn baby. Which is almost exactly what happened to his mother when he was little, so that's kind of a weird parallel there. Jacob Crouch's saving grace was his daughter Susan, who was 20 years old, had recently married a man by the name of Daniel Holcomb, and was living on her own farm near her father's massive 1,000-acre estate. In exchange for what was said to be a whole lot of money, by some accounts over $20,000, which in today's money would be over $300,000, Susan took her youngest brother Judd and raised him as her own. As in, Judd thought his sister and brother-in-law were his parents, and that his father was his grandfather until he was about 10. And that's just a weird thing to do. I mean, yes, what happened is sad, but you got to be honest with your kids. Look what that kind of lie does to people. Look what it did to Theodore Robert Bundy. He grew up thinking his grandparents were his parents, and look how he turned out. Just let's never do that, okay? Never do it. Even with Judd off living a lie, Jacob still had three children at home to raise. When Anne died, Byron was 17, Dayton was 13, and Eunice was 9. And Jacob was not the nicest of men. He was said to be ornery, cold toward his children, stingy with his money. He didn't trust banks, so he literally kept his riches stuffed in the rafters of his farmhouse, which the house itself was very unassuming. It was not the type of house that you'd expect a man with millions of dollars to live in. Byron and Dayton were best friends, and as soon as the younger of the two turned 18, they enlisted together to fight in the Civil War. For the good guys, of course. After the war, and against their father's wishes, the brothers moved to Texas and started a sheep farm together. That left just Jacob and his youngest daughter Eunice at home together, which easily explains why she was his favorite. She graduated from St. Mary's College at Notre Dame, Uh, before returning home to her father where she managed his household. In 1881, when Eunice was 31, she married William Henry White, who just went by Henry, a local man two years her junior. It was said that Eunice's family, especially her father, opposed the union. At the time, Eunice was being courted— did I say Eunice? Eunice— Eunice was being courted by 33-year-old William Ayer, a friend of her brother Dayton's, who had formerly worked and lived on the Crouch farm. But Henry White's family was pretty well off, much like the Crouches. His brother was a prominent physician in town, and, you know, the heart wants what it wants, so Eunice married Henry. 1883 started out rough for the Crouch family. 
On January 30th, 36-year-old Dayton died of smallpox in Fort Worth, Texas. He had done well for himself as a sheep farmer, and his $50,000 estate, well over a million dollars in today's money, reverted to his father instead of his brother, who was his best friend and business partner. It should be mentioned here that neither Dayton or Byron ever married or had children. They were happy just living in Texas, raising their sheep together. Um, Jacob Crouch felt that he was entitled to the money, to Dayton's portion of the estate, because he had put up the capital for the two brothers to start the farm to begin with. But Byron felt that, as his brother's business partner, Dayton's assets should have gone to him. Whether or not the Crouch family actually mourned Dayton is kind of up for debate. They were a weird bunch, but his death did definitely cause strife within the family. Life goes on, though, and a few months later, Eunice announced that she and Henry were expecting their first child together. This bit of happy would soon be dashed, however, because within a year's time, most of the Crouch family would be dead. November 21st, 1883 was a dark and stormy night in Spring Arbor Township. (laughs) This sounds cliche, uh, how many scary movies begin on a dark and stormy night, right? But it's actually true. Not only is it true, but the storm played a role in the horror that would soon unfold. 74-year-old Jacob Crouch had a full house on his secluded farm that night. Living with him were his 33-year-old daughter Eunice, who was eight months pregnant, and her husband of two years, 30-year-old Henry. Some reports said Eunice and Henry moved in with Jacob to help him with his affairs as he was getting on in age, while other reports made it sound like Eunice had always lived with her father, and then when she married Henry, he moved in too. Who knows? What's important, unfortunately, is that they were living with him in November of 1883. Also living in the house were two hired hands, 22-year-old Julia Reese, a pretty young country gal who'd recently separated from her husband, and worked for the Crouch family as a housekeeper and cook, as well as George Bowles, a 16-year-old black farmhand whose older brother had recently been fired by Jacob Crouch. So, five and a half people living at the Crouch farm. Jacob, his favorite daughter Eunice, who was pregnant, hence the half, Eunice's husband Henry, Julia the housemaid, and George the farmhand. The family had a guest that night as well. 23-year-old Moses Polly, a cattle buyer from Pennsylvania, from Pennsylvania, had traveled to Jackson to purchase cattle from the Crouch farm. In most articles that you'll find, Moses Polly's connection to the Crouches is explained just that simply. He had traveled from out of state to buy the cattle, but it was a bit more complicated than that. Moses had previously lived in Jackson and had lived and worked on the Crouch farm. During his time there, he fell in love with a 17-year-old servant girl by the name of Minnie Anson. So he swept the servant girl off her feet, took her away from the Crouch farm. The two were married on August 12, 1880, when Minnie was just 17 and Moses was 20, and together they moved back to Moses' home state of Pennsylvania. Hence, the Crouch's need for a new pretty servant girl, a la Julia Reese. So Moses Polly wasn't just a businessman passing through town. He was actually a family friend who'd come for a visit and to do a little cattle buying. So back to November 21st, our cold, rainy November night on the Crouch Farm. Uh, There were stronger storms on the way, and Jacob Crouch and his companions sat around the fire and talked about business and politics. 
Around 9 o'clock that night, the party of six said goodnight, and everyone went to bed. The main bedrooms were on the first floor, where Jacob, Eunice, Henry, and Moses slept. Julia and George slept upstairs on the second floor. The servants' quarters were kind of separated from the rest of the house. They had their own staircase that led to the kitchen and the back door so that they could come and go without disturbing the family or passing through the main house. At about 11.30 that night, the big storm rolled in. It rattled the windows, banged the shutters against the house, and shook the floorboards. It was so loud that it woke 16-year-old George from his slumber. As he listened to the wind howl and the thunder roar outside, he heard another sound. The sound of shots ringing out, cutting through the storm like a knife. And then he heard moaning and groaning and what sounded like a muffled scream, then more shots. Terrified, he crept to the window and looked outside. He saw a man holding a lantern, pacing by the front gate. In the middle of the night, during a raging storm. Something wasn't right. But what's a 16-year-old boy to do in a house full of wealthy white men, with guns, possibly? So he hid. He tossed the clothes out of the chest at the end of his bed and climbed inside. He tried to close the lid, but he was too big to fit all the way in the trunk, even with his body contorted like a jackknife. So there was about a six-inch gap between the trunk and the lid when he pulled it down on top of himself. With nowhere else to go, it would have to be good enough. He hid in that tiny box for hours as the storm raged outside, while who knows what went on downstairs. When sunlight began to creep in through the gap in the trunk, George finally climbed back out. Some reports say he woke up. I doubt very much that he was asleep. Um, how, how could you be? Not only are you terrified, but you're twisted up like a pretzel inside an old wooden trunk. So I, I doubt he did a lot of sleeping that night. But when the sun came up, he got out of the trunk. He got dressed so quickly that he actually put his pants on inside out. As he slowly made his way down the stairs, the silence alarmed him. Everyone should have been awake, getting ready for the day. Farm work starts at the crack of dawn, right? But there was just nothing. He slid open the door to Jacob Crouch's bedroom and found his boss lying dead in his bed, covered in blood. He'd been shot in the head, likely while he was sleeping as his eyes were still closed. In the next room over, 23-year-old Moses Polly also lay dead in his bud. In his bud? I wrote blood, I meant bed, I said bud. That's how today's going. Moses Polly's dead. He's in his bed. He's covered in blood. There it is. He had been shot twice, once in the head and once in the chest. He was also believed to have been shot while he was asleep. The bedroom of Henry and Eunice White was an even more grisly scene. They too were still in bed, covered in so much blood that they were unrecognizable. Henry had likely been shot first while he was still asleep. Uh, his eyes were closed. He'd been shot once in the neck and once in the abdomen. The shots that killed Henry woke Eunice, and her death was not so peaceful as the rest of her family. Her eyes were wide open, her face was contorted in fear, her clothes were disheveled, her arms were thrown over her head, and she had been shot not once, not twice, but five times. Twice in the right arm, once in the left wrist, once in the neck just below the chin, and once in the chest. It was the chest wound that killed her, although not right away. She'd bitten through her tongue and had froth about the mouth. In the articles I read, it was alleged that she bit through her tongue in fear. 
I'm thinking it was maybe more likely that she had a seizure, especially if there was frothing action going on, but who who knows. Eunice bled out slowly, and it was believed it took several hours for her and her unborn baby to die, as her body was still warm when authorities arrived. Poor 16-year-old George Bulls, hella traumatized by this point, fled barefoot from the Crouch home and to the neighboring farm of Mr. Hutchins, half a mile away. He first encountered a farmhand to whom he cried, they've all been murdered at our house. The farmhand fetched his boss and Mr. Mr. Hutchins. Mr. Hutchins gathered up a small posse of farmhands and hurried to the Crouch home. He entered first through the back door and found the housekeeper, Julia Reese, standing at the stove making breakfast. Who's been murdered? I can't can't even say murder anymore. I, something's wrong with me. I don't even know what to tell you guys. Who's been murdered? He asked her. Nobody's murdered that I know of, she said. And that sounds suspicious, right? Like, how does she not know that literally the entire household has been murdered? But remember, she's got her own staircase at the back of the house, the whole point of which was for her to be able to come and go and do her work without disturbing the rest of the family. So she just got up, went down her own little staircase into the kitchen, and started doing her job. She didn't go exploring before she started working. So, I mean, it does make sense. It sounds weird at first, but it does make sense. Mr. Hutchins and his posse pushed past her into the main house and found the carnage that George had warned them about. Mr. Hutchins then sent George to the next farm down the road for help, about two miles away. That farm was owned by the Holcomb family, as in Susan Holcomb, Jacob Crouch's eldest daughter, Judd Holcomb Crouch, Jacob's youngest son, and Daniel Holcomb, Susan's husband and Jacob's son-in-law. Daniel rounded up a posse of his own, and they rushed to the Crouch farm as well. So now we've got, what, maybe a dozen people that have contaminated the crime scene at this point? Not that they did, like, DNA testing or anything like that back in the 1800s, but still, that is a lot of people walking around, touching and moving shit, leaving footprints, disrupting blood splatter patterns, just ruining everything. Daniel Holcomb and Mr. Hutchins put together a crew and headed into Jackson to alert the sheriff of the murders. The Crouch Farm was so secluded that by the time the sheriff and the coroner arrived, hundreds of neighbors had already gathered. Even though this is the 1800s, nobody had phones out in the country, um, but everyone knew about the murders and they'd all paraded through the house to look at the bodies. And see, this is why I always have such a problem with people talking about how This true crime obsession slash fascination, whatever you want to call it, is new in our society. There's nothing new about it. We have always been morbid as fuck. When Bonnie and Clyde got drugged through town in their buttle, buttle, bullet, (laughs) oh my gosh. When Bonnie and Clyde got dragged through town in their bullet riddled car, their bodies hanging out, The entire town swarmed the car, ripped off their buttons, cut pieces of their hair. I mean, uh, true crime obsession, not a new thing. Anyhow, uh, my point here is that all these people had already been through the house by the time police got there, so the crime scene was trash, even by 1800 standards. With the rumors of Jacob Crouch being worth millions of dollars and keeping cash stashed around his home— Robbery seemed like a likely motive at first, but there was no money missing, not even the cash from the murdered men's wallets. 
Moses Polly's drawers had been rifled through, but nothing appeared to have been taken. So the killer was looking for something, but it wasn't money. With the crime scene destroyed and the robbery theory out the window, police did the only thing they could think to do. They arrested the black kid. Of course they did. Even though, by all accounts, George Bowles appeared genuinely traumatized by the situation, he was a good kid with zero motive, he was thrown in jail just because he was there, just because he lived, and let's be honest, just because he was black. Tossed into the slammer with him was Julia Reese, which, I mean, I feel like that makes a little bit more sense given the fact that she was cooking in the kitchen while the whole household lay slaughtered in the next room, the fact that she didn't hear anything at all. At least 10 shots had been fired, and she didn't even wake up. George might have waited until morning to investigate, but he at least knew that something was going on. Police later reconstructed the shots, which were all from a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson, and they determined that there was no way that anyone in that house could have slept through such a commotion. Both 16-year-old George and 22-year-old Julia were held until after the coroner's inquest, at which point they were released because there was absolutely no evidence against them. But there were those in town who continued to believe that they played a role in the murders. Other theories arose. Robbery continued to be a motive even though no money was taken and at least $58,000 cash was found in the home, which would be the equivalent to about $1.5 million today. So that's a lot of money to leave behind if you're trying to rob someone. Everyone knew that Jacob Crouch was richer than shit, even though his house itself was a shabby mess, and they knew that he kept his money in the house. So they really kind of, robbery made sense except for the fact that they didn't actually get robbed. I read some reports that said that he was worth $2 million when he died. I doubt that very much because that would be over $50 million today. And there are not enough cows on the planet for him to have been that rich. Other reports said that he was worth about 200000 That extra zero makes a big difference because that would be the equivalent of about $5 million today, which sounds a lot more plausible. In addition to Jacob Crouch being in old money bags, Moses Polly had allegedly been flashing thousands of dollars on the train to Jackson, bragging about how much money he had. Cattle buyers and sellers usually dealt in cash, so it was theorized that thieves maybe followed Moses from the train to the farm, intended to rob him, but things went south and instead they wound up killing the whole household and leaving all the money behind. Which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Another theory was that a disgruntled former employee might have killed Jacob Crouch and his family out of revenge. The list of people who hated Jacob Crouch was long and included William Ayers, the employee who'd been in love with Eunice and was fired right around the time that she married another man, a farmhand by the name of Charles Parks who'd been fired just the week before for getting too friendly with housekeeper Julia Reese, as well as the older brother of George Bowles who'd also recently been let go. A photographer from Ann Arbor was brought in to photograph Eunice White's eyes to see if the killer was reflected in them. Because remember, she was the only one who died with her eyes open. Yes, you heard me right. They took pictures of her eyes to see if the reflection of the killer was still in them. Shockingly, 
This did not further the investigation even a little bit. The Jackson County Sheriff said that was because too much time had passed between Eunice's death and the taking of the photograph. This sounds ridiculous, right? Because it is fucking ridiculous. But this was an actual real thing that scientists, photographers, and law enforcement once believed in. The practice was called optography, and it first started in 1876 and continued through the early 1900s. There are lots of interesting articles about the science, heavy on the air quotes around the word science, behind optography. Um, I'm not going to get into all of that here because a science podcast this is not, but I found the whole thing both super interesting and ridiculously hilarious. A photo was also taken of Jacob Crouch, and if you Google Crouch murder or Jacob Crouch, this is the first image that you'll see. And the first thing you're going to notice is his creepy fucking eyes. Well, the reason that his eyes look so crazy is because the photo was taken post-mortem after the man had his brains blown out. His eyes were closed, so the eyes in the photo were painted on after the fact. There were apparently no photos of the multimillionaire in existence at the time of his death, and authorities figured the news outlets were going to want one, so... Yeah, they, eh, this is all weird, and it's about to get weirder. As authorities investigated any and all leads, the Crouch murders became a national spectacle. Train routes added a Jackson stop so passengers could gawk at the murder house. The case made headlines around the country. A $12,000 reward was offered for information leading to the arrest of the killer, or killers, $12,000 in 1883 would be equal to over $300,000 today. So that was a lot of money. Which meant amateur detectives descended upon Jackson County, as did private investigators hired by the Crouch family, investigators hired by Henry and Eunice White's family, investigators hired by Moses Polly's family. Everyone had their own investigators. Byron Crouch came up from Texas to see to his father's affairs, Even the infamous Pinkerton agency got involved. Just way, way, way too many cooks in the kitchen. But amidst all the noise, a new theory emerged. There was apparently a battle raging for the Crouch family throne. When he died, Jacob Crouch was worth a whole lot of money, between $200,000 and $2 million in 1883, which would be between $5 million and $50 million today. So, a lot. He owned over a 1,000 acres in Jackson County and significant holdings in Texas. He'd recently inherited his son Dayton's sizable fortune, and he was planning to leave it all to his new grandchild, Eunice and Henry's baby. Not only was Eunice Jacob's favorite, but he felt he'd already given his other children their fair share. He'd invested over $60,000 into Byron and Dayton's sheep farm in Texas over the years, so about $1.5 million in today's money. He'd paid the Holcombs over $15,000 to raise Judds, so close to $400,000 today. Uh, the rest, and there was a lot left, would go to Eunice and her family. And that didn't sit well with the others. This would certainly explain why Eunice's murder was the most brutal, why she was shot so many times. Whoever killed her hated her and her unborn baby. There were rumors that Byron had hired a band of outlaws from Texas to kill his father and sister. Henry White and Moses Polly were just collateral damage. 
There were rumors that Daniel Holcomb and Judd Holcomb Crouch did the deed themselves. And there were rumors that Byron and Judd, the eldest and youngest Crouch boys, planned it together. Byron was 41 when his family was murdered, while Judd was only 24. Neither had a good relationship with their father. Jacob had never forgiven Byron for moving away, and he never forgave Judd for killing his wife, which of course he didn't fucking do. He was a baby, but Jacob was a grudge holder. Whatever the truth was, everyone was suspicious of the Crouch brothers and the Holcombs. And then... On January 2nd, 1884, six weeks after her father, sister, brother-in-law, and first niece or nephew-to-be were murdered, 44-year-old Susan Holcomb, Jacob Crouch's eldest child, was found dead in her bed. The culprit? Rat poison. Whether she was despondent over the allegations against her family or because she knew that they were true, Susan was spending most of her time in bed. On January 2nd, her 15-year-old daughter, Edith, went to check on her and found the door locked. She forced the door open and found her mother dead in her bed with a paper of poison in her hand, is how the newspapers put it. I have no idea what a paper of poison is. Like, was the poison itself wrapped in paper like a piece of hubba bubba gum? Was it one of those little skull stickers that just said poison on it? Who knows? I don't know what a paper of poison is, but she had one, so they knew that she'd been poisoned. While the newspapers were quick to label Susan's death a suicide, the Jackson community wasn't so sure. They were already convinced Daniel Holcomb had murdered four and a half people. Was Susan number five? Was someone trying to wipe out all of the Crouch children? Only two were left now, Byron and Judd, out of six, and only one grandchild— None of the Crouch boys were married or had children at the time of the murder. Eunice was pregnant with her first child when she was killed. Only Susan was a parent, and she only had one living child. So if all of the Crouches were gone, everything would be left to 15-year-old Edith Holcomb, Daniel's daughter. To complicate matters further, despite the widely reported details of Susan's death, her physician declared her dead from a heart condition, not death by rat poison. And then there were, of course, rumors that the doctor had been paid off to file a false report, but that's another story. And then, before authorities could even wrap their heads around Susan's mysterious death, there was another shooting and another death. James Foy was a farmhand for the Holcomb family, and he was living with them at the time of the massacre on the Crouch estate. He shared a bedroom with Judd Crouch and two other farmhands, and he was among the posse that rode out to the Crouch farm. Farm? My goodness. He rode out to the Crouch farm the morning after the murders. Now, here's something interesting. Well, I mean, this is all interesting, or else I wouldn't be talking about it. Immediately after the murders, Judd Crouch moved into his father's house and started running the show. I mean, I guess it makes sense he was Jacob's only son that lived in this state, but it's still a bit suspicious considering that they hated each other. So when Judd moved over to the Crouch Farm, James Foy went with him and was essentially his right-hand man. If you read pretty much anything about this case, it's going to tell you that the James Foy incident happened two days after Susan Holcomb's death. That is fake news. On her headstone, Susan's date of death is listed as January 2nd, 1884, 
but many of the articles I found list her date of death as February 2nd, 1884, a full month later. Headstones can be wrong, and old newspapers can definitely be wrong, but I found an actual news article from January 4th, 1884, talking about Susan's death, and that isn't wrong. So she did die on January 2nd, not February 2nd. And the James Foy incident began on February 4th. That is well-documented and not in dispute. The problem is that many of the newspaper articles from the time list Susan's date of death as February 2nd, which is wrong, and then they go on to say that the James Foy incident occurred two days later. And that two days later part just kind of really stuck to the story because it makes the whole thing more dramatic, but it wasn't two days later. It was a month and two days later. Those are the facts. The end. I don't care what else you read on the subject that says otherwise. I'm right and they're wrong. In all, in all seriousness, I spent a ridiculous amount of time trying to get this piece of the story right, and I'm confident that I did. Just trust me on this one. So, a month and two days after Susan Holcomb's untimely death, James Foy rode into Jackson and went on his own personal pub crawl. They say that loose lips. No, they don't. They say that loose lips sink ships, and the more James Foy drank that night, the looser his lips got. He talked about the Crouch murders, claiming to know who was responsible, and even allegedly brandished a 38 caliber Smith and Wesson, much like the one believed to have been used in the murders. Still on his bender, he traveled to Union City to seek out a man by the name of D.J. Easton who was both the town's postmaster and the editor of a news publication called The Register. Easton had published an article accusing James Foy of being involved in the Crouch murders, and Foy wasn't happy about it. So on February 4th, around 11 p.m., James Foy encountered a man that he thought was Postmaster Easton, but was actually the deputy postmaster and coincidentally DJ Easton's son-in-law, a man named Elmer Schuler. Elmer was walking into a pub with a friend when Foy approached and fired three shots, striking Elmer once in the head and once in the neck. James Foy then ran off into the night and walked all the way back to the Crouch Farm, which, according to Google Maps, would take 11 hours today. Who knows how much longer it took back then? Um, but this math doesn't add up that I'm going to tell you next, so just, just take it with a grain of salt. According to official reports, James Foy arrived back at the Crouch Farm at 7 a.m., still somehow drunk. He confided in Judd that he'd blowed a hole through two men in Union City and that the coppers wouldn't take him alive. At this point, James Foy believed that he'd shot both men. He didn't. Only Elmer was hit. And that Elmer was dead. He wasn't. He was critically wounded, but he somehow survived being shot in the head and neck by an 1800s Smith & Wesson. Judd's excuse for not doing anything in the face of James Foy's confession was that James always talked shit when he was drunk, so Judd didn't take him seriously. Was this true? Probably not, but we'll get to why a bit later. So, Judd and a couple other farmhands take off to go do farm shit about town, leaving Foy alone in the Crouch house. Edith Holcomb, Judd's sister-slash-niece and her paternal aunt, because remember about everyone on the maternal side of her family is dead at this point, arrived at the house late in the morning to do housework for Judd. 
The door was locked, and they could see James Foy asleep on the chaise lounge. They banged on the window. He got up and let them in. And then what happened next is up for debate. I've read two different versions of this story. In the slightly more dramatic version, authorities in Union City contacted the Jackson County Sheriff's Office by telegram and alerted them to the fact that Elmer Schuler had been shot and James Foy had been named as the shooter. An officer was sent out to the Crouch Farm, but he didn't have an arrest warrant, so he talked to James for a few minutes, and then he left. On the road, he was met by another deputy, this one armed with an arrest warrant. As they were driving back up the drive to the Crouch home, they heard a shot. They rushed into the house and found Edith Holcomb and her aunt standing over James Foy's dead body. He'd been shot in the head by a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson, just like the one used in the Crouch murders. The other version of events goes like this. As Union City and Jackson County authorities were communicating via Morse code about the need to take James Foy into custody like now, Edith and her aunt arrived at the house to do the chores. By this point, rumors had spread like wildfire about the shooting in Union City, so they asked James about it. He mumbled something about not being taken alive, went out to the barn where the guys working also asked him about the shooting, so he went back inside, walked into the kitchen, and blew his brains out. Edith and her aunt heard the shots and ran into the room. They were still processing the gruesome scene before them when police arrived with an arrest warrant for James Foy, who was dead on the floor. I mean, the stories are similar enough, and the result is the same. Another dead body in the Crouch house. What's important to note, though, is that nobody saw James Foy shoot himself in either version of events. Someone who'd been running his mouth about the murders and become a liability was dead, and no one saw who shot him. So our body count is now up to six and a half. Jacob Crouch, Henry and Eunice White, their unborn child, and Moses Polly all murdered in their beds on the Crouch farm. Susan Holcomb, dead in her bed a few weeks later and a few miles down the road, either by murder, suicide, or heart attack. And now James Foy, back on the Crouch Farm, either by murder or suicide. Not to mention Elmer Schuler, who was critically wounded when he was mistaken for a reporter who'd written an article blaming the Holcombs and James Foy for the murders. I mean, I feel like this case is kind of solving itself at this point. But wait, there's more. On February 8, 1884, so just a few days after the death of James Foy, an amateur detective by the name of Galen Brown, who was a former Battle Creek police officer, was leaving the Crouch home when two men in a buggy approached. One of the men pulled out a revolver and fired point blank, hitting the detective in the chest. Galen lay in the road, slowly bleeding to death until a couple on their way to a dance happened upon him. Detective Brown was taken to the hospital, where he identified Judd fucking Crouch as the shooter. A month later, on March 8th, 54-year-old Daniel Holcomb, son-in-law of Jacob Crouch and widower of Susan, and his 25-year-old son-slash-brother-in-law, Judd Crouch, the youngest of the Crouch children, were arrested for the murders of Jacob Crouch, Eunice White, Henry White, and Moses Polly. Daniel Holcomb went to trial first on November 8, 1884. The Great Trial, as newspapers called it, lasted over two months. 
over 145 witnesses were called. Entirely circumstantial evidence was presented. Tens of thousands of dollars were spent by both sides, which today would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. The trial lasted two months, and in the end, it took a jury less than an hour to find Daniel Holcomb not guilty, which they did on January 10, 1885, over two years after the murders. With Daniel acquitted, the county wasn't willing to put in the time and money it would require to take Judd Crouch to trial, so he was released from custody. Daniel Holcomb rebounded from the whole ordeal quickly and in scandalous fashion. He married his dead wife's cousin, Amanda Crouch, who was 20 years his junior, and moved to Wisconsin, where he died in 1920 at the age of 88. Judd Crouch inherited his father's estate, but later lost the property to the bank. He moved to Indiana and married Viola Worrall in 1888, but soon moved back to Jackson. In 1898, Judd and Viola had their only child, a daughter, Ruth. Judd Crouch died on August 30th, 1946, at the age of 86, the last of the Crouch children. The Crouch murder house burned to the ground in a suspicious fire in 1947. Officially, the Crouch murders are still unsolved. Susan Holcomb's death was determined to be from natural causes, and James Foy's death was ruled suicide. Both Elmer Schuler and Galen Brown recovered from their Crouch-adjacent shootings. Don't worry, friends, we're still not done. I promised you a paranormal aspect, and here it comes. Love each other or hate each other, and they definitely seem to hate each other for the most part, the Crouch family stuck tight to one another, all living within a few-mile radius, except for Byron and Dayton, who lived, died, and were buried in Texas. It was Jacob's intention for them to stick tight throughout eternity, hence Crouch Cemetery, now also known as Reynolds Cemetery, which is located on the corner of Horton and Reynolds Roads in Spring Arbor. There you will find the graves of Jacob Crouch, his wife Anne, their daughter Ethel, who died when she was little, their eldest daughter Susan Crouch Holcomb, and Susan's son Bert Holcomb, who also died when he was little. He was four. Eunice Crouchwhite, Jacob's favorite daughter and likely the one he most would have wanted to spend eternity with, is buried at St. John's Catholic Cemetery in Jackson with her husband Henry and, of course, their unborn baby. The two cemeteries are about five miles apart. According to michigansotherside.com, shortly after the killings, people started to report seeing a hazy, white, cloud-like mist traveling from St. John's Cemetery, where Eunice is buried, to Crouch Cemetery, where her beloved father is buried. This is said to happen every year on the anniversary of the massacre, right around midnight. The Crouch haunting has become such a well-known urban legend in the Jackson area that police often patrol Crouch Cemetery into the wee hours every year on the anniversary to prevent gatherings and seances. And that is the ridiculously complex story of the Crouch murders. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My sources for this episode were an MLive article written in 2010 by Leanne Smith, Wikipedia, and oodles of super old articles from newspapers.com. Not only does this wrap up episode 62 of So Dead, but this also officially brings season two to a close. Thank you guys so much for sticking with me this year through format changes, a fucking pandemic, unplanned breaks, 
I appreciate you so much. I will be back for season three in early 2021. There are a couple things I still need to do to round out 2021st, though. I want to send a huge thank you to all of my wonderful patrons who throw their financial support behind the show. 2020 is not over for you guys yet, I'm afraid. You still have a November bonus episode coming your way soon, as well as a bonus episode in December. Also, a huge shout out to everyone who has left reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook over the past few months. From Apple Podcasts, there's JN, no, <laughs> J9ND. This one, okay, I don't know how to pronounce this last name at all, but I know who this is, and her first name is Lorena, so I will just say Lorena. Thank you. Uh, Holly M. Scribb, Loopy Lulu 2, Christy Sue, Macintosh, and Dizzle Lurie. And then from Facebook, there is Laura Sikenga, Laura Pickett, Rebecca Merwin, and Natasha Rivera. If you want to hear your name on an upcoming episode of So Dead, all you've got to do is leave a review, either on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. Now it's time for our last round of listener questions this year. And I'm actually just going to go through and do all the ones left on my list so that I don't leave any hanging I'm planning to make a few changes next year, and I have not decided if this segment, this segment, I just, I'm sorry. It wouldn't be me if I wasn't mispronouncing my words, so I haven't decided yet if this segment is going to continue, so I just want to get it all wrapped up now just in case. First question is from Jessica. She asked, what began your love for true crime? That's a really hard one because I don't know. It's just something that I've always liked. Uh, if I have to kind of try to think back and remember the first case I remember, I guess the first big one would be the Adam Walsh case. Um, you know, I knew bits and pieces of it. It was a, a cautionary tale for me as a little girl who liked to wander away from my mom at the store. So I, I would have to say, I guess, the Adam Walsh case. Next question is from Tina. What is your favorite topic to cover? True crime stories, paranormal stories, or those that combine the two? Also, was this preference altered in any way by your experience at the Old Stimson Hospital? Uh, my preference, I, I love being able to combine the two, which I was able to do in this episode. I love being able to say, hey, people say this place is haunted. Here's the things they've experienced, and here's what's actually happened there. That's that's my favorite to tell. And no, I don't think that was influenced anyway by the the experience at Stimson Hospital. It's kind of something that I've always done. And, and Stimson doesn't really have true crime attached to it. It's got tragedy attached to it, but no actual true crime. Just some freaky fucking doctor ghosts that like to torment me and others that visit. But that's the point, right? Um, this next question comes from S. Stanf4042. It says, what made you want to start a podcast? Had you ever done anything similar before? Looking back, what was the first clue that you had a love for true crime? And did you ever work in law enforcement? So she asked me like seven questions. I'll answer them one by one. Uh, what made me want to start a podcast? That would be um, people around me, the feedback I was getting. So the tours were my first thing, my first business in the paranormal true crime world, and that's storytelling. It's in-person storytelling while on a field trip. 
And then came the book Haunted Lansing, which yes, it's paranormal, but as much as possible, I tied real life stories and the true crimes related to the hauntings to each location. Uh, So as I'm doing the tours in the book, which is just different ways to tell these stories, people kept saying, you have to do a podcast. You have to start a podcast. You need to do a podcast. Um, I guested on a podcast and I did some interviews. Uh, I had to listen back to them and that helped me get over the fear of listening to the sound of my own voice, which I do still hate. And so I just decided, why not? Why not try it? You know, it's just another form of storytelling. So yeah, that that's kind of what made me decide to try it. Had I ever done anything similar before? Uh, I, mm, I mean, the tours in the book, again, storytelling. The tours were in person, so it was like a live podcast, kind of. Um, and then I, I did interviews about the book quite a bit, so I guess that would be a little similar. First clue that I had a love for true crime. Again, hard to say. It's just something that I've always been interested in. I can say that I do remember people making me feel bad about it. Not in my household. My parents are both really into the dark shit too, but you know, I, I'd hear or read something that I found fascinating and tell it to a friend and they'd be like, why are you talking about this? It's so upsetting. So I, I do remember being made to feel a little little weird for having the interest that I did, but I don't remember exactly when I realized that this was my my thing. Did I ever work in law enforcement? If I w- <laughs> wasn't so tired right now, I would die laughing because no, 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 uh, I am not, that's not me. I could never work in law enforcement. I have great respect for those that do their jobs properly and well. Um, There are lots of good officers out there, as we've seen. There are lots of not so great officers out there and lots of things that need to get worked on and fixed and changed, but no. I've never worked in law enforcement. All right. I think that's it. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And be sure to visit SoDeadPodcast.com for all your SoDead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. That's it for Season 2 of So Dead. Thank you all for joining me on this bumpy ride. We're almost there. 2020 is almost over. Thank Baby Yoda. 2021 is going to start out rough, no doubt, but I have to believe that things are going to start getting better soon. They've got to, right? If between now and season three, you find yourself needing a Sodad fix, you can always join the Patreon party. All $5 and up subscribers have access to monthly bonus episode, and there's a good little backlog of those now. And the bonus episodes continue even when the podcast itself is on hiatus. Or if you have not yet, please check out the Serial Killer Chronicles, my first Sodad miniseries, as well as my next published book coming to you sometime next year. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sane, and keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.